You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Alan Davison. Alan Davison is the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Technology in Sydney. And he is a long-term member of Heterodox Academy. And he is also now co-hosting a um, podcast series with Josh Seps, which is called Permission to Think. And it's within the aegis of Josh Seps's Uncomfortable Conversations. Um, I have actually myself been a guest on Josh Sepp's podcast, and Josh has also joined me on this podcast. So I'm I'm a big fan of Josh's work. He has an interest in um, anti-racism and um, the way in which the term Islamophobia has been weaponized within Australia. And you also, Alan, um, say that you have an interest in making the faculty at um, at the University of Technology, Sydney, stand out as a beacon of critical inquiry and cognitive liberty. So I think that's, that is what we're going to talk about. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much, Iona. It's wonderful to be on your podcast, and thank you for that lovely introduction. So you talk about some of the more worrying developments as you see them in academe, um, including increased censoriousness and also what you, you, well, you describe it here. You say, disciplines that are grounded in the real world, making a GPS unit that works, an airplane that flies, a bridge that stands up, are constantly being challenged by the real world. It's problematic where there are disciplines that have a very indistinct relationship to reality, yet claim to understand it. Those disciplines are typically in the humanities, arts, and social sciences, but they're beginning to encroach on other elements of the university, such as administration. So um, could you tell me about the ways in which you feel woke orthodoxy um, or this uncritical, um, this somewhat critical theory-influenced way of thinking um, how you would characterize the problem and how you think it's affecting you at your own institution, which is a science and tech institution primarily. Um, thanks. That's an excellent question. And it might take us longer than we have to work all the way through it. But I think there's a, a couple of ways we can approach it. In the past, I think a lot of the, if you like, woke or what's recently characterized as woke critical theory perspectives were rather contained within those disciplines. So it might be literary theory, might be gender studies, might be race studies, things like that. And those disciplines were, I think, rather siloed from, from others, at least in, in many universities and for many years. In many ways, I think what's happened is 
it's not that they've necessarily infected other discipline areas within universities themselves. I think what's actually happened is they've actually infected, if you like, the public discourse and social media, and that is what's found its way back into universities. So that those people that are working in the, if you like, the scientific disciplines, in inverted commas, scientific and technical disciplines, have been caught almost unawares as they're finding themselves now, uh, you know, having to undertake implicit bias training, undertake sensitivity towards a range of things. And this is happening through administration. So that's a good example where the it's almost encroached from outside, even though it started within academe. The woke critical theory and the influence of it has actually now influenced a much broader public sphere and found its way back into the university in interesting and unusual ways. That's probably the best way I can try to characterise its its trajectory. So how is it affecting your university? Well, at this university, I don't think terribly much yet overall. This particular university I'm in has a very strong relationship with industry and employer groups, and it's very vocationally focused. However, I think it's making its way here, uh, not that I'd want to get into many specifics because I wouldn't want to talk too much about my own university in detail, but I can talk about what I think the general state of affairs is, of which this university is, is obviously a member of the other universities across Australia, and that there's an increasing censoriousness that's coming through not only through the disciplines themselves, but manifest through pressure from students who are demanding safe spaces. Uh, It's increasingly finding its way through administration, things like equity and diversity units, so forth. And so those things combined, as well as the natural fear that academics have of being mobbed, of having their uh, career put at risk through uh, scandal or online um, dogpiling, etc. All of those things combined to make it uh, much more challenging than it was even a few years ago. Um, is there a legal reason why you can't give details about your own university? Well, just because I'm in a reasonably senior management role, I wouldn't want to say anything that reflects on other senior colleagues that I have to work with. Mm. Yeah, I think, I mean, we do need some specific examples. Um, otherwise, people are just going, uh, I mean, the criticism that is always made is that people who complain about woke stuff at university don't know what they're talking about and don't have any specific detailed examples to show what they mean? Well, I think there's a couple of ways of of approaching that that I am comfortable talking about. One of which is the kinds of uh, equity and diversity training that comes through administration at all universities. Uh, And and just to be clear, the work that I've published criticising anti-racism work on Islamophobia is actually not particularly relevant to my university. I'm talking about uh, academic work that's done in scholarship in the Australian context. It's actually nothing specific to my university. In fact, it doesn't relate to my university. But I think uh, training programs and things like that that come through uh, equity and diversity units, cultural sensitivity, of which many of which, of course, be well-intentioned, that's, that's one thing. But I think the more important thing that is evident through its absence is the variety of areas that are now no-go zones for scholarship, for funding, for PhD students, and for people that have a career. In other words, it's the self-censoring and the, if you like, the Darwinian effect of various topics to avoid and research areas that are not fruitful if one wants a career 
in in studying or researching areas that can often be hot topic areas. Could you give an example, maybe from your own field, which is music? Uh, in music, uh, well, music is challenging, but I'll, I'll I'll do what I can. So, music covers many things. Of course, it can be anything from music analysis. Uh, it can be music history. It can be music reception. Many of these, uh, if you like, sub-disciplines within music have been influenced, I'd say often in a very positive way, by critical theory. But it also means, for instance, that we find it increasingly hard to have uh, canonical figures from the past presented for so-called you know, great music, and Bach, Beethoven and others, because they're increasingly framed as being representative of a white Eurocentric canon that underpins uh, you know, heteronormative ideas and that kind of thing. So again, not relevant at my university because we don't do this kind of music, but uh, you might have noticed that in uh, in the UK, there's been conversations going on within uh, academic music communities about uh, music history programs, how everything needs to be uh, gendered, racialized, um, and the the who the person is. So, you know, if the composer or the analyst or the musicologist is a white cis normative man, that immediately is taken to be a mark against the uh, validity of their scholarship or the greatness of their compositions. Mm. So um, one of the casualties has been kind of survey courses in music. Is that the problem? There's a, a lack of a core curriculum? Yes, uh, in Increasingly in some areas, and I, I'm very empathetic to the idea that um, canonical history programs can, of course, become ossified. You know, we get the the greats in inverted commas, and there's to the detriment of, of others and to the detriment, of course, of socio-political context of which music was formed in. So I'm not unsympathetic to the idea that survey courses, of course, need to be selective. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with asking the question, what are the criteria by which people are in and people are out? And I think that's a very healthy discussion to have. I think the challenge is this, if that some kind of survey history is not presented at all, it's very hard to uh, situate any individual or any particular stylistic movement or indeed any other thing uh, within its own musical context, because it's not as if for instance, in the case of music, music is merely a reflection of a socio-cultural environment. Um, music is not, if you like, just a derivative reflection of the of the politics and the the gendered environment within which it exists. Clearly, it reflects it in some way and is influenced by it. But the idea, I suppose, that I find concerning is this very deterministic view that um, that individuals cannot be great, if you like. Uh, that in the the greatness that we assign to some individuals in the musical canon is simply, if you like, a construction that reflects certain norms of the uh, of the elite or of the powerful. So I want to come back to um, what you think is going wrong at Australian universities, um, and you talked about the diversity, equity, and diversity training programs um, and. Could you give some examples of some ways in which you think those have been detrimental to education? Well, it, it'll be interesting to measure or and know how to measure and which 
ways they'll be, if you like, objectively detrimental. But to just give one example, um, the implicit bias training programs that pretty much all universities use are derived in a... Really? They're using implicit bias training? The implicit bias training is now pretty much standard, not just in universities, but in many large... Oh, my God. I didn't... I didn't realise. The implicit association test, you mean? No, well, implicit bias training that is the result of so-called insights from the implicit association test, yes. Right, which has been completely debunked, the test. The test has been totally debunked. That is correct. Um, Yeah, carry on. But there's now obviously very much an industry around that where there's, you know, there's a lot of money and there's many so-called experts steeped in the training of implicit bias, derived itself from the implicit association test and all of its uh, you know, conjunct assumptions that forms the basis of uh, a lot of bias training in both the public service and uh, the university and in large corporations. And I don't think anyone would disagree that the intent behind it is excellent um, because we, we want to have a diverse, rich uh, work environment that uh, you know, embraces people from all kinds of backgrounds and provides opportunities. And we obviously want to get rid of, um, as, as best we can, forms of discrimination. The challenge is when you present a program like that at a university, if it actually has academics that will ask questions about, if you like, the factual um, strength or the the theoretical strength of the training programs themselves, I think the, that's where it's doubly ironic that we're having academics that might actually have expertise in, say, psychology or um, behaviorism or something that will need to do implicit bias training that's derived from a highly flawed uh, approach to to bias. Yeah, I I talk about this in a lot more detail in the episode I did with uh, Jesse Single. Um, But briefly recapping, the IAT um, has, it doesn't have um, test retest fidelity, i.e. meaning that your results will differ, differ a lot depending on when you take the test. Um, it's also thought to measure, so the authors say that was never meant to be used for individuals, um, but to measure kind of bias within society as a whole. So if you are for example, uh, faster to associate negative words with black faces. That doesn't necessarily mean you yourself are racist. Um, it can mean, it could mean, for example, that you're more likely to hear negative things said about black people. And that is a reflection not of you, but of your society. So that was, um, um, that is what the founders of the test have said. It's ne- it was never meant to be a kind of, personal exam. Um, and there's also no, um, no known correlation between scores on the test and discriminatory behavior or attitudes in real life. So, uh, you know, the test is just complete, completely bogus, basically. Yes. And I think we've had enough years of the test being around now and, and its application through implicit bias training to be able to measure, as indeed some large studies have done, whether implicit bias training on the whole has been an, infect, an effective interventional measure in institutions. And the evidence, as, you, as you'll probably be aware, uh, if you've talked to Jesse, would be it doesn't show itself to be effective at all. Yeah, you say um, in one of the interviews I, I read that um, 
I've had a lifelong interest in the debates around the so-called culture wars that all knowledge is social construction, unless it's something to do with white fragility, in which case it's as true as gravity. And this seems to be another of those cases in which, um, in theory, uh, I mean, in academia, you are, in theory, encouraged to question things. Um, but these are ideas which seem to be People seem to be attempting to ring fence off from questioning and criticism. Exactly. And I think that that really gets the heart, to the heart of the concern I have is that when there's a certain cluster of ideas, and it doesn't matter what it is, could be associated with a religion, could be a political movement, could be an ideology, could be something to do with an aesthetic movement, it doesn't matter. But when you've got a cluster of ideas and a movement around it where if one is sceptical of it or if one publicly questions it, it's taken to be evidence of not only the correctness of that theory or cluster of ideas, but it, it, it just smacks of this whole sort of apostate um, approach that we get in, in religious movements and cults where you're discouraged from even asking the question, you're discouraged from even thinking critically which is why the, the series that Josh is doing with me is called Permission to Think, because something like white fragility means that if you're a white person and you've just had a lecture on um, Black Lives Matter or some race matter from, uh, from an activist or a, or a commentator and one wants to ask questions that are sceptical and critical, one's going to check oneself to think, oh, hang on, am I demonstrating my white fragility by actually asking, uh, asking questions? And that sort of self-supporting, self-replicating um, system that we find in, in these belief clusters that, of course, are found very obviously in certain types of religious movements, I think that's what's the most concerning thing emerging from uh, critical theory in public discourse at the moment. Hmm. It's also, I mean, there is also the case that universities are basically nowadays corporations and Academics have, I, th I think, very little, um, a lot of constraints on their free speech that have to do with the university system, um, not even anything to do with critical, with social justice um, ideology. And, um, you know, if you don't have a, um, in the US, a permanent position, a, temp a tenured position, or here in the UK, a permanent position, and... Um, if you are regularly up for review, you need to be careful about what you say, because if you make the wrong decision, you could get denied tenure or you could get fired or you might be put onto off a kind of more research heavy track and onto a really teaching heavy and admin heavy track. They might give you all of the kind of, um, you know, they might pile work upon you and then be also expecting five articles per semester. Um, so there are a lot of ways in which um, academia is corporatized and hierarchical, and you have to be careful to not rock the boat. And I'm really surprised by how few senior academics can speak out also, because you can't be, as you said, you can't be critical of something your own colleagues are doing, because that might lead to bad blood between you and your colleagues. And when you get a kind of um, these 
sorts of um, professional moral grandstanders. Um, and you combine that with an atmosphere that is already quite um, not very conducive to boldness. It seems to me like a perfect storm. I, I, I would agree with your um, characterization of that and that there's, I think, a very odd and strange marriage between the the corporate university that's very brand aware, uh, approaches students as customers, if you will, or their parents as customers, one as a corporation, um, and so on and so forth. And on the other hand, this new rather sort of radioactive politics of identity um, and the things that come with it. And thinking of a couple of scholars that have, I think, really nailed that well, one is certain, certainly Kathleen Lowry, uh, who's University of Alberta, and she wrote a terrific article um, just last year uh, in the Archives of Sexual Behaviour. And in that article, she basically focuses on precisely the point that you've made, that there's this, there's the very corporatized university, which is brand aware, risk aware, um, very, very conscious of itself, with all of the things that come with that. And on the other side of the coin, but forming this unhappy marriage is this new politics of identity, which means that if you question, um, say, research into Islamophobia, or if you question uh, trans-affirming um, treatments, or the unquestioning way that they tend to be presented, or if you question the uh, foundational ethics of a movement like Black Lives Matter, you're basically putting your career at risk, uh, not only from um, social mobbing, uh, shunned by your colleague academics, but also, of course, from the university administration, the brand awareness and all those other things. So I think it comes from both sides. Mm, yeah. Um, could you give some more specific examples um, of how the diversity training is affecting things at universities? Look, it's hard to measure at the moment because um, what it's really doing is setting a baseline around uh, bias itself. Look, it's hard, it's hard to measure the impact of something that's so dodgy to start with. Um, yeah, I wasn't asking you to measure the impact. I was asking you for examples. Of uh, Well, staff aren't necessarily happy to do it, but in some places it's a requirement. So one just has to do it. Um, and I think uh, colleagues across the university sector, so not naming any particular universities, Colleagues across the university sector are, if you like, uh, reluctant or resentful that they have to undertake training that they know has poor intellectual and research basis for it. But if they voice concern or antagonism towards it, it will just be seen as uh, the need for them to do probably more training. As far as tangible effects, look, it's not it's not uh, in impacting and brainwashing people. It's not it's not as bad as that. But I think what, where its impact is particularly, particularly bad is that if there's a training program like this in the university sector, which is based on such uh, faulty methodology and faulty science, if you like, it's sending the signal to everyone in the sector that uh, at the end of the day, truth doesn't matter. What matters is what we're seen to do rather than its actual impact and its effectiveness. So it's, it's a very poor exemplar of institutions being concerned and you know they're covering themselves by saying but hang on uh we're fighting discrimination and racism because we do uh 
racial sensitivity training or we do implicit bias training and so forth. So it's like it's covering themselves like an insurance policy, but it's also sending a signal to all the staff is is that uh, it doesn't matter if this is well based in science or psychology, you have to do it anyway because we're a corporation. So it, it sets an expectation around well, what is the university really about then? It's a place where you should be able to question the foundation of knowledge programs and things like that, as we as we do, of course, all the time. And yet we apply such a program within the university sector. And it's almost, I think it's almost unquestioned. I've seen very little public questioning of programs like implicit bias training in the university sector. Mm. Yeah, it reminds me of that sense of the... Um Old Meyer, of the Myers-Briggs uh, scheme. Um, I think Myers-Briggs has been very definitively demonstrated to be bollocks. Um, in Aria, we actually did a feature on this, and I will, uh, by Lethal Shuaf, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, and I think that, you know, most people know it's bollocks. And yet when I was applying for jobs in the States, I had to take the Myers-Briggs test, I don't know how many times. And every each time I got a completely different result. But it didn't matter. Whatever result I got on that particular day was really important for the hiring committee to know about. And it's it felt to me like a kind of um, a sort of ludicrous theater that people were going along with for absolutely no reason that seemed as kind of incongruous as, um, you know, being a scientist, but being really concerned about whether the moon is rising in Aquarius or not before you do your experiment. Yeah, it, it is doubly ironic. I mean, it's my, it was Myers-Briggs then, it's implicit bias training now, it might be something else in 10 years time. Uh, and I'm sure going back 30 or so years, there might have been something else. What's What's ironic about it is that it's applied in an institution of learning where there will be people within that institution that have already gone way past and critiqued these very systems and approaches that are then imposed upon them. So it is quite ironic mm. to watch. Yeah, I also think um, that there there is something quite totalitarian about your employer wanting to know what your actual biases are. So even imagining the implicit association test could test people's kind of racism. I think that um, how racist or otherwise the employee is and their thoughts and feelings is actually none of your employer's business. Um, what's important is only how you behave in the workplace. Um, this kind of idea that you should try to delve into the person's mind and personality, um, independent of how they're doing their work and getting along with their colleagues, um, to sort of discover what's in there. It feels to me, that seems to me quite, uh, quite dystopian. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not possible to do, but luckily it's not possible because I think that's, it's, it's very, um, ethically wrong, actually. But do you think it's, it's part of the obsession over, who you are, not what you do and what you say. So it sort of fits that mindset of our current times quite well in, in that there's such an obsession around who the person is that's saying something or that has voice and they, they therefore represent, if they say a mainstream or majority or from a dominant community or something, almost anything they yeah. by definition can be discounted because of what they supposedly represent. 
rather than the content and the merit of the ideas themselves? Yeah, I think that there is. Um, so people are understandably keen to um, get rid of discrimination and prejudice and provide a kind of genuinely equal opportunities for people. Actually, well, not everybody wants that. Some people want a kind of reversal of things. So they want more opportunities for certain types of people than others in order to quote unquote redress the balance, which I also disagree with. Um, but um, people want equality of opportunities and therefore they want something that they can, something really easy to identify and measure which they can use as a proxy for disadvantage or even victimhood. Um, and um, unfortunately, I think there's no shortcut to looking at the actual circumstances of people's lives to understand how much advantage or disadvantage they have. And there's no proxy for looking at their actual circumstances to dis to discover whether they are suffering from hardship or discrimination. Um, you can't just look at their skin color. You can't just hold up a Pantone chart against their, a pan, uh, against their skin color um, or get them to tick certain boxes. Um, that's a system that just does not work. But people desperately want it to work. They're looking for a very simple proxy measurement. Do you think that's, that's a correct way of no, that, that's uh, I think I, I know, that's a beautiful summary of it in that um, they're trying to put a measurement on something that's already very hard to try to measure, but it, it's and, and therefore that allows lots of box ticking. But my understanding, for example, in in the UK, that as far as um, tertiary or university college education is concerned, one of the most underrepresented groups pro rata is poor white men, is my understanding. Uh, you know, very poorly represented in in advanced education. And it, you, you wonder what good it will do for those young white men coming from poor or lower socioeconomic backgrounds in their droves to be told all the time about their privilege because they're white. So it's not like it's it's a harmless foible that at the end of the day will still be a positive thing. It, it can hardly be a positive thing for so many people coming from disadvantage to be told, but hang on, um, you don't fit the right coding system here to, to be categorised as disadvantaged. Yeah, and the problems also aren't the issues, the kind of disadvantages that there are, aren't caused by... Um, aren't really caused by people's personal prejudice. They're caused by largely, largely by economic factors. So um, this is one thing I talked about a little bit with um, Tommy Owelade when he was on the podcast. Um, and this is your field, so it might be relevant. Um, there was a lot of concern about underrepresentation of um Black and Asian, by which we mean kind of Indian Pakistani origins. Um, and uh, I, I also have in, uh, Indian background. Um, there was an underrepresentation of, of Black and Asian um, musicians in orchestras. So um, orchestras are, um, I don't even know whether they're 
whiter than the general population because the way underrepresentation is used is often a little bit deceptive. So, for example, you know, the BBC is said to not ha- Radio 4 is said to not have enough presenters of color, but they have a higher proportion of, say, black presenters than there are black people in the British population. But it's not 50-50. So I, uh, anyway, um, I think that uh, nevertheless, orchestras are whiter, quote unquote, than the general population. Um, and um, they decided the issue was um, that they used to have blind auditions. So you couldn't tell the skin color of the person playing and were judging by their playing alone. And that has led to um, this racially imbalanced situation. So now they no longer have blind auditions so that you can kind of give extra credit to somebody when you see their darker skin color, um, you can give them some extra kind of points um, on their playing. But it it still remains still remains the case that people of color are underrepresented. I believe that's true in orchestras. And, you know, nobody is talking about the kind of obvious thing, which is to become an orchestral musician, you need to have had music lessons from uh, almost always need to have had music lessons from a young age, which means you probably either went to private school or your parents had the money to pay for your piano lessons, etc. And it also means that you you knew that you could go to music conservatory, spend a lot of time as a struggling musician, probably earning very little because you would be able to continue living with your parents or being supported by your parents. Um, or, you know, your parents or your parents' contacts would, would help you out so that you were realistically able to do that, even though you weren't earning a normal wage. Um, and also that many, in particular, uh, black families are second and third generation immigrants um, with a very strong professional work ethic. And among Indians, you know, Pakistanis and Bangladeshis, of course, the kind of stereotype is um, your your children should become doctors and um, uh, and lawyers and pharmacists and and um, should have stable, well-earning careers because you don't have the kind of legacy of wealth and financial comfort to have the luxury to let your son just be a violinist. Um, and that's, that is not solved by positive discrimination towards people who have darker skin or else all you have is those who have darker skin who also come from wealthier backgrounds. So that was a very long speech. <laughs> I hope it made sense. Yes, music. No, no, that's definitely, and I'm aware of some of the studies. I haven't undertaken them myself. It's not my field. But I have kept up to date with some of the studies that have been done on, say, gender balance or uh, uh, ethnic background, racial background in orchestras. Look, there's a lot going on, but there's a couple of things worth pointing out, one of which is, yes, uh, European classical symphony orchestras, for example, come from a European classical symphony orchestra tradition which in many cases was a sign of wealth, particularly if it was um, if it was in you know the era of courts and kings and patrons, etc. Of course, it is it is I find deeply amusing that there's an expectation that something that is almost the pinnacle of uh, colonialist European um, 
background and the epitome of it, the orchestra, the court orchestra, things like that. Why would one want to be in it as a sign of anything, particularly if you dislike the canon? You don't like Beethoven symphonies because Beethoven represents white European supremacy, but you want to have more musicians of colour playing Beethoven. Why are those two things desirable at the same time? But you've hit on precisely an excellent point regarding um, why would one want to be a musician uh, all of those years? Um, basically, if you're not gaining enormous skills as a musician in your very young years, so starting your instrument at you know six, seven, eight, um, personalised tutoring, uh, lots of time to do practice either side of school, parents running you backwards and forwards to your lessons, rehearsals, school orchestra, university orchestra, uh, supporting you for auditions while you're living it. All of those things uh, which form the typical backdrop, if you like, the caricature of the of the classical musician trying to get into an mm, orchestra, yeah. of which only a tiny fraction get in, by the way. Uh, I, I studied performance at Melbourne University until I changed to musicology. Only a tiny handful of people in my year or the years around me have moved on to actually have a career as a professional musician. So it's a tiny sliver of the elite. Yes, uh, they are people from privileged background, went to what we would call here private schools, um, often lived in colleges, supported by their parents, didn't have to work after hours. Why is that a desirable thing to, 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 um, to go after when um, working at the shop, mum and dad's shop afterwards, uh, helping with the family business, studying to do maths, science, law, medicine, all of those other things, one has to question, well, why is it so desirable anyway that we redress a, a supposed imbalance? Why is it necessary that a symphony orchestra at a major capital city in Europe is pro rata according to the population around it, as if that's a positive thing to, to seek? Mm. For me, that's the fundamental yeah. question. Why on I, earth is I it? I agree. I mean, I think it has to be about individual freedom and, and individual experiences, and therefore I would absolutely support more uh, financial support for musicians, um, but I don't. I don't feel like it makes any difference whatsoever what skin color the musicians have. Um, you know, if every single one of them was a Jamaican who, uh, a person with Jamaican parentage who grew up in Brixton, that would also be fine. I mean, how would you even be able to tell? Yes, and there's, you know, as much as I love music, there's many other things to do and many other fruitful careers to have. It is, it is fair to point out, though, that in many of these things, yes, there was discrimination against women uh, who weren't allowed in, in some countries and some areas to play professionally. There would have been, say, enormous social pressures that past a certain age, you should be having children and doing other things. All of those things have been true in the past. Um and I know that there's been enormous effort to try to get, say, a better gender balance in orchestras. And my understanding from the latest research I've seen is that is largely succeeding, except for those orchestras that still have legacy positions that are basically tenured positions that once you get into the orchestra, you're there for the rest of your life. And that is certainly the case with some European orchestras, renowned European orchestras, although I can't remember the name of them that you'll see men in their 60s there playing, a lot, of, a lot of bald white men, because basically when they auditioned and got the job 30 years ago, it was a job for life. Mm. But that is certainly changing where that is not the case. Yeah, I, I do wonder when I hear statistics about the, the proportion of white men in a particular 
corporation or organization, I always wonder how much that has to do with seniority, i.e. it's not that more white men are being hired right now. It's that um, in the past, uh, more white men or almost exclusively white men were hired. And therefore, those people are all in the more senior positions, which I don't have a problem with. You know, I don't think they should be ousted or something. Um, but it just reflects um, there's a, a demographic lag there. Yeah. the I think the socioeconomic one is really the critical one, but also what someone, say an aspiring musician from a particular sociocultural background, say how that family views and rewards the effort you know, if a child from a particular background wants to become a musician, but the family or the cultural tradition there is to work in the professions or, or train in medicine, that's, that's a discrimination from within that community itself. It's not due to white supremacy. Um, if there's some communities and some uh, racial cultural backgrounds that do not value things that are valued in other communities, that is ne- not necessarily the fault of those other communities. We're talking about um, the particularly the socioeconomic privilege that goes into, say, wanting to become a professional musician in a classical orchestra, for example, a symphony orchestra, or indeed becoming a solo musician, classical musician. It's only a tiny sliver of the elite that manage, and those are, are folk that have been learning from from childhood with lessons, rehearsals, mum or dad driving them around of a school orchestra and things like that. And it speaks to a remarkable, not only dedication, obviously, from the family and the aspiring musician, but it's often, but not always, connected to a certain type of uh, economic privilege, as well as, obviously, classical music, in the case of classical music, being very valued in the home and by that society. But of course, one thing that's very evident to me here in Australia is that the number of young musicians um, say under 20 that I see in school concerts and the ones that are outstanding, many of them are Asian students that have learnt Suzuki method, which is learnt by many students, not just Asian students. But there's a dedication to practice and uh, excellence and achievement uh, in some of these families that is absolutely remarkable. But my own uh, guesstimate is that probably well over half of the outstanding young Asian musicians I come across end up going into medicine or law or business, whilst still the application that they have in their music training to, to become you know, very high standard musicians, semi-professional or even professional standard, is obviously greatly valued within those households, even though they don't go on to necessarily have a career there. But I think it's very complicated to just look at a snapshot of a symphony orchestra from any particular region or city around the world, certainly in the in the West or in Europe, and say this needs to reflect pro rata the community around it because the community around it might have a lot of other things that they'd rather be doing than learning Western classical music. Yeah, yeah. I think it might be similar in a sense to the well-known phenomenon that the more equal a society is, um, the more uh, equality men and women have in a society, the more um, differentiation there is between the careers that men choose and the careers that women choose. Um, That the more freedoms you have, the more likely you are to choose the things that are 
less less likely to bring you economic security. Yes, and that's a certain type of privilege, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, I tend to dislike the word privilege because it sounds like a slur to me. Um, and it feels as though you're telling those people that they shouldn't have those things. But yeah, it's um, in the sense in which you're, you're, you're using it here. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I, so um, I guess I have two main questions for you that I want to make sure we cover. And this is the first one. You talk about taking an evolutionary psychology slash mimetics approach to critical theory. Uh, could you explain what you mean by that? Uh, certainly. Um, I'll explain what I mean by that, and then perhaps I'll backtrack a bit to explain what met, led me to take that approach. Really, it's looking at the insights that have come from uh, very broadly evolutionary psychology, if you like, that uh, many studies have taken that approach in looking at behaviours around um, religion, for example, and the, the way that uh, belief systems that are clearly, by any rational measure, irrational, um, bind communities together, guide their moral lives, guide their understanding of the world around them, and lead to a whole lot of moral and ethical prescriptions, of course, often with very negative and uh, biased outcomes. And what I was interested in in hypothesizing around was, can we apply some of the insights of a Darwinian approach to understanding why people believe things to postmodern critical theory itself and actually view it as almost a cult or a religion, but not saying that in the sense of a slur. Um, you could say something is a cult, you know, postmodern critical theory and identity politics is a cult. And you can say that as a sort of backhand slur. But I mean it more, rather more seriously to say it's now a remarkable and a remarkably dominant phenomenon of our modern life. Can we approach the, by all measures, the great success and influence of postmodern critical theory from the perspective of seeing it as a belief system or a set of belief systems that have been, that have flourished remarkably been remarkably influential on public discourse and social life and understand it as if almost a, if it was a religion, but not necessarily taking that to be a derogatory perspective. Um, and I had really two motivations for that, one of which is I've seen and no doubt you've seen and you've had guests on your podcast, Iona, that have been, that have, have had really good uh, and really sound intellectual critiques of postmodern critical theory, pointing out its many flaws and foibles and self-contradictions. And yet what struck me, certainly at my age, is yes, but we've been having these conversations for 20 plus years, and it certainly hasn't stopped uh, this suite of ideas becoming dominant. So merely critiquing what I and perhaps you and, and many of your guests and many of your listeners see as the intellectual flaws in postmodern critical theory hasn't been enough because it's not explaining its success. And for people such as myself, I would say that the success and the dominance of postmodern critical theory is not due to the fact that it actually understands the world well, or is even in many ways coherent, but because it must be speaking to different parts of our psychology, if you like, often deeply rooted elements of our psychology regarding tribalism 
and all of those things that have led humans over many tens and hundreds of thousands of years to have something like a religious belief. So it was partly that. And then the other side of the coin, which led me to write this paper um, a couple of years ago on, on Darwinian approach to postmodern critical theory, um, the other thing that led me was slightly mischievous in that I was trying to reverse the sociology of science approach, that is the strong sociology of science that was so dominant uh, certainly through the 90s when I was at university where um, all elements of science, scientific um, theory, scientific structures, this is post-Thomas Kuhn, of course, uh, was seen as the construct of the society, the scientists around them, their biases, etc., as if there's no element of external validity to science as an undertaking. It can merely be explained as or explained merely as the outcome of certain types of social norms. And so what I was trying to do is a slightly tongue-in-cheek reversal of the sociology of science. I'm trying to do the psychology of critical theory. Hmm, interesting. I, I, I guess I, I have a few thoughts on that. One is that um, um, I'm fine with a religious idea and with a kind of memetics, but I'm not sure whether how specific that is to a particular um, to this particular philosophy, um, and one thing that I have been musing on lately is how how ready we are as human beings in general to infuse um, theories, so theories that are supposedly about how things are. So critical theory is a theory about how things are, um, even if you don't believe that. If if you think that, for example, um, there is um, scientific ideas are the product of social structures and scientist biases, etc., that is a theory about about science, about how science is, um, and therefore, in itself, there should be no moral valence to a theory. It's either true or it isn't true, um, and whether or not it's true will not necessarily depend on whether you would like it to be true, and it won't depend on whether you believe it. Depends on whether you're intellectually convinced by its truth. It doesn't. It doesn't depend on whether or not you're a good person. So this is where the religion thing comes in, because in religion, um, you you believe there's a god or gods because you're a good person, rather than because you're intellectually convinced that that is the state of affairs. And yet it's not a, it's not a moral question. It's a factual question, whether or not there is a God. So I can see a similarity there, but I do see that with uh, a great many other belief systems as well. Um, so for example, I, I was a dance teacher for many years, and I'm sure this is true in music as well, but, um, people invested, uh, emotional and ethical significance in questions that would seem like purely technical or stylistic questions to anybody who wasn't a professional dancer in my field. Um, so I, I, um, danced and taught Argentine tango, um, as many people know. Um, I wasn't a, like a, a, a top dancer or a teacher. I was more like an assistant to professional teachers. And I also, um, wrote about tango as well. I had an extremely popular blog. So I heard a lot of 
I sort of hosted a lot of debates um, about about dancing, and people had very strong feelings about, for example, whether when dancing you should dance in what we call a close what we call a close embrace with um, bodies touching or almost touching throughout the dance, or whether you should open and close the embrace so there's more space between the two dancers' bodies and, or whether you should dance completely open. And um, these are questions that have technical repercussions um, and as well as some kind of emotional repercussions because obviously it's sort of nicer to be snuggled up against the person, but it does technically limit uh, what you can do. Um, so these are questions of artistic choices, styles, etc. Um, but if you had uh, looked at how people discuss it, you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't believe that these were questions for artistic style and technique. Um, these were absolutely discussed as if they were questions of um, ethics and morality. And I have noticed this with the anti woke people who are kind of my political tribe, if you will. Um, recently that some people have accused me of kind of personal betrayal for expressing ideas that they don't think fit the anti-woke pantheon of ideas. For example, for being an enthusiast for uh, COVID vaccinations, which they consider to be not part of our anti-woke heterodox set of beliefs. Um, and they're accusing me of betrayal, not for actually critiquing any individuals, not for saying anything bad about the individuals, but for just having the wrong beliefs. So it seems to me to be, um, and this in a group who are supposedly very much in favor of heterodoxy of thought um, and freedom of expression. Um, and it does seem to be a really, really universal human tendency to create ideologies, group ideas together, and then to swear a sort of fidelity to those ideologies and invest them with moral significance. No, I, th I think that's a, an excellent observation about how signalling one's membership to a tribe, and even a large tribe, is done through you know that public signalling of beliefs. And I, I'd certainly think that something to watch, and I'm certainly watching it with concern, is that the the anti-woke movement, and I'd consider myself to be, you know, clearly a woke sceptic, um, these things can ossify and get their own uh, energy, get their own norms. And, you know, it, it's almost a self-contradiction to have a community of heterodox people. The one thing that that can keep them working as a heterodox community is that they respect the differences of opinions and, and that they don't get too tribal. So it would certainly be disappointing if amongst that heterodox community that you're linked to that they begin to shun or disown people uh, for having a view that doesn't sort of signal the right thing for, for the majority. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it does seem to be, you know, one of those ways in which uh, maybe this is returning to the Evo psych. It does, and I'm just spitballing here off the top of my head, but it does seem to be one of those kinds of um, shortcuts and heuristics that we like to use um, to get a kind of handle on the ethics of things. And shortcuts and heuristics are really useful in life, 
um, you know, you don't have time to be considering everything very carefully on its own individual merits. You have, you have to have guidelines. Um, and this seems to be one way in which our emotions and intellects are hijacked by that human tendency to, to, to seek the heuristic, to seek the easy guidelines. Indeed. And I think, uh, you know, a mantra of us uh, and our colleagues needs to be, you know, resist the heuristic because, um, once it becomes common amongst the community that one mixes within, it becomes yet another thing that's not constantly questioned. And we, we don't want to be in any kind of intellectual community where things just become orthodoxy. You know, last, last um, decade's radicalism becomes this decade's orthodoxy, as it has done with critical theory and other things anyway. I suppose my observation around the religious element of it, and it harks back to something I think we talked about beforehand, is the idea of apostasy, the idea that you signal your uh, adherence to the belief structures that publicly or even privately voicing concerns about them marks you as someone as, as, as different, uh, potentially to be outcast. Um, there's a lot of self-justification and self-reinforcement that goes on in, in many sort of religious religious systems that, for me, speaks a lot about the kind of identity politics that we're seeing uh, that really dominate at the moment. Yeah, it is very concerning to me that there is such a sort of lockstep of views um, in the mainstream media and universities, and that it kind of, I can almost detect a shift when people go from thinking aloud and considering things carefully, which of course might include having views that I would consider woke or that I would disagree with, but which they are um, you know, coming through, coming to through a process of intellectual exploration. That's great. Um, and, um, and that moment at which they sort of switch over and you can just hear them speaking a load of buzzwords. And it does seem to me that meaningless, spouting meaningless jargon and being an academic, that's a match made in heaven. <laughs> Especially in that's unkind, but possibly true. <laughs> um, but ideally, at the university, I, the problem is it's trivially easy to um, uh, to get people to self censor and to lie to you. It's very, very easy to intimidate students or intimidate colleagues, um, and it is much harder to create a space in which what I used to, the the way in which I used to use the term safe spaces when I was an academic back in, I left academia in 2006, so a long time ago, but uh, when I taught at universities, um, we use this term safe space to mean a space in which you were free to say whatever you thought, and nobody would judge you for it, i.e. it was a space in which you were free to speak your kind of unformed thoughts, to just think aloud and ruminate and maybe get things very wrong, um, but not be judged because it was just a first draft of your ideas. And that is really hard. It's really hard to provide that kind of place, and it's very important. I agree. And the place that should be really solidifying that approach of uh, openness to inquiry, um, capacity to be wrong, without being shamed or judged as one thinks things through, that should be at the university. It should be in the schools, really, but it certainly should be in the university. 
And if it's being degraded there, then we've got uh, generations of trouble facing us as these students come through that have been schooled in a, in a certain a certain set of uh, beliefs and approaches that has basically censored them from thinking outside that, that, if you like, critical theory woke box because they've been told, particularly if they're from a certain background, that to even ask the question or to put your hand up in the room and to disagree with someone, perhaps from an underprivileged background or to disagree with someone who has a, the, you know, the lecturer or the tutor or the reading about some race matter gender, sexuality matter or whatever, um, the risk is you'll just be typified as, well, you're disagreeing because you're a this category of person. And if that's happening at universities, we should be very worried. Mm. So you you have said elsewhere, um, I love this phrase, uh, you said that university should be a place for the critical, nuanced, intellectual inquiry into challenging issues. I think that's a lovely summary. Um, obviously, not just that, you can also do critical nuanced inquiry into issues, ideas and issues that aren't aren't politically challenging in that way, but we shouldn't shy away from the challenging. And I um I'm I'm noticing I'm also kind of alarmed by an erosion of public trust in the university system. And that is partly because of the economics of it. Um, so Universities charging huge amounts of money for tuition, um, leaving students with enormous amounts of debt, the whole kind of um, really exploitative um, publishing and the predatory pu university publishing industry and the exploitative university job market uh, and career structure. Um, so all of those things, I think, um, undermine universities' credibility as well. Um, and then this kind of the spending of so much of their budget, um, much of which is coming, at least here in the UK, from taxpayers on diversity officers and other kind of professional <laughs> professional snitches and um, um, confession takers and kind of thought police, as I think of them. All of all of that is very problematic, and I'm hearing a lot of people saying there's no point to universities anymore. Um, what would you say in defence of the university? And what do you think if universities fail? What is the downstream effect? So, yes, noting all that you said, uh, and that would probably vary from various parts of the world to others. Uh, of course, I think you've you've characterised a range of ailments that would be common, though, across many universities, certainly if you like in the West, if I can use that term still. Um, was it the global north now? Can't quite remember. But anyway, um, you've characterised a set of things. Look, I think, yes, that is all true, but there is still a lot of great stuff happening at universities. It's still the place where um, students can get a remarkable exposure to challenging intellectual ideas as long as we don't let them become monolithic and orthodoxy, which I think they are, in some areas they are. Um, the risk, of course, of the loss of trust in the universities would be, well, firstly, if parents and students decide not to come anymore because they don't think it's worth it because they think the whole system's a scam that need to get this three- or four-year degree in order to get a job 
So there's a sort of perverse marketplace there. Mm. If any one of those points in the marketplace collapses, then the whole economy of the university can collapse. So if employer groups, large industry sectors and others, the ones that don't require a qualified degree like law or medicine or teaching, but in all the other areas, if they decide, well, stuff this, we're not happy with the kinds of graduates we're getting anymore. We want someone that's had a part-time job for a few years, maybe worked at a, at a fast food joint, maybe done a bit of stuff themselves, and they're, they're pretty well educated and articulate and they get on well, we'll employ that person instead. If, if that kind of thing happens on a large scale, then the whole economy of the universities and the job market and that codependence upon each other could break. And that would obviously have serious ramifications for the university because if employers and people in the real world wise up to the idea that maybe you don't need someone with a three or four year degree to do the job really well, maybe they can learn on the job really well. Maybe they're even better to work with. Maybe they're less easily triggered than someone that's done a three-year degree. So if that happens on a large scale, yes, the system could collapse. But also if universities lose their, if you like, their institutional trust. Uh, what's that book, The Constitution of Knowledge? Mm, yes. Okay. Jonathan Rowe, who you I know. also interviewed on, on this podcast. Um, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful book. You know, he's a one, he wonderful and he speaks a lot, of course, to the to the issues that we're touching on here, that people can't be experts in everything. We need to trust that, you know, when you go to a doctor, when you go to a lawyer, when you go to any particular thing, there's someone there that has trusted knowledge that's outside what you could possibly know as a single individual. But there's some kind of institutional guarantee that what they're telling you is based in evidence, is for your good, and all those other things that we, we assume. If we reach a tipping point where, if you like, public trust in institutions such as universities maybe gets to a certain point, again, that could have devastating effect on the, on the universities. But really, it's incumbent upon universities to get ahead of that and to demonstrate to skeptics that are asking reasonable questions, a minority publicly from within universities, but not very many, but a lot from outside the universities. Um, Universities need to show this is why you should trust us, and because we have the most, you know, the best brains doing the best critical work, following evidence, using reason and argument, and we're going to stop obsessing around things like identity. And who knows if we've already reached beyond the tipping point of that for the institutions globally, or if there's still enough residue in the marketplace of you know, well-to-do or aspiring middle-class families in China and other developing areas that want to send their kids off to do a business degree somewhere. There's enough There's enough in the tank there that like the oil reserves in Saudi Arabia, it'll still keep things going <laughs> for the next 10 or 20 years. But nothing would surprise me. Um, you know, if the next five or 10 years we see the sector seriously disrupted through any of these sort of economic systems, or if we see uh, alternatives to the university being put forward by entrepreneurs. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I am very um, – um, I feel that for me the real value of the university was having my ideas um, having my ideas challenged and unpicked. Um, and I've talked about this before, so I don't want to go into too much detail here uh, for, in case regular listeners get bored, but um, the way that we we did our degrees at Cambridge when I I did I studied English literature, 
Um, and we would, uh, read the book that we were studying. Let's say it was, um, let's say it was Jane Eyre to give a classic example. And we'd read some criticism on it and we would put together an essay the week before. And then the day before, um, our supervision, we'd put it under the supervisor's door. And then, um, when I came into the, when the, my supervision partner and I came in to have our lesson, um, the, the, the fellow would go through our essays and tell us all the ways and, and ask us why we had said certain things and get us to justify them and, um, suggest the ways in which we'd been wrong and the ways in which the critical books we'd read had been wrong. And it gave me, what it really gave me was, um, a sense of, it gave me something that I think you can't get from just autodidacticism, which is a sense that my own ideas, however um, enthusiastically I had come by them and however backed up they seem to be by other people's work, um, that those ideas could just be mistaken and needed to be subjected to the, the cold kind of wind of, of criticism. And I'm not sure that you can get that in an autodidactic way. No, I'm sure that's true. And I think um, the obviously the educational opportunities you had through that kind of system of one or two people with a supervisor, that that's wonderful. Uh, but of course, it's probably not true for the vast no, majority absolutely. of you know, mass-applied uh, education across the globe, which is now an industry. So as a result, I think institutions, it's almost natural that they shortcut what should be deep critical engagement in a one-on-one or sum-to-one environment where we've got you know, tens of thousands of students coming through individual universities. And I think this is perhaps the environment within which critical theory has been able to flourish because it's like a cheap answer. It's like a fast food response to a hunger crisis that if you're feeding a whole lot of intellectually hungry and inquiring young students, which they are, Absolutely. I've, I've no doubt they're as inquiring as they might have ever been. But instead of, instead of challenging them and giving them this very sort of individualized intellectual dialogue and environment, you pull out a whole lot of critical theory that talks about the, the ills of the world. Uh, it's like a cheap shortcut to critical thinking. And, and there's one thing about critical theory. It's certainly not critical thinking. Mm. But it's, like the, um, it's like the hamburger of critical thinking but at least it can be made en masse. And I think that might be something that's led to the flourishing of this kind of thing because students think they're getting a shortcut to becoming intellectually, uh, you know, intellectually vibrant and critical by hearing a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of critical theory which they can apply in their everyday life. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you feel that the atmosphere on campus has, has changed since you began your academic career? What have you noticed um, in the ways in which people are in the classroom, in the staff room, etc.? I'm I'm no longer in the classroom myself. Mm. I haven't been for a few, but I do talk to academics uh, across, uh, certainly in Australia, um, have informal conversations with them. They are certainly much more careful what they talk about and what they present because they're worried about, you know, are they. Uh, are they going to trigger someone? Are they going to get a complaint? Are they going to make a comment or say something that um, appears to critique or criticise something that's a bit of a sacred cow at the moment? 
Um, so I th- and I've certainly heard informally and confidentially from some students over the last few years that those that are critical of, if you like, woke critical theory are increasingly reluctant to speak up in the class because they feel that they're going to get shunned or attacked or dismissed or humiliated in the class. And so it does stifle discussion in the classroom, for sure. Thanks. Alan, is there anything that you wish that I had asked you about, which I haven't asked you about? Um, no, look, not at all. I think we've had a, a, a nicely wide-ranging conversation. Um, no doubt in the show notes you can put in some links yes, to of some course. papers and things. I will, I will put all the links into the show notes. And, uh, and I'm happy to – I think you should have most of them from our previous correspondence, but if there's anything missing that you think would be useful to add to your listeners, I'd be very happy to send it through. Great. Well, if you think of anything, do let me know, and I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And um, Excellent. thank you so much for a really productive discussion. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. And it's been lovely to meet you online like this. Thank you. I hope we meet in real life someday. It's an ambition of mine to go to Australia. Um, I have never been. You'd be most welcome. I'm sure you'd love visiting Sydney. Oh, I'm sure I would. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC, Papa Charlie. Stay well, stay happy, and have a wonderful week.